today's topic is which translation should you use? I didn't know if I was going to do this one because I know it can hurt people's feelings. So <laughs> I'm going to try my best not to give my opinion unless I first state this is just my opinion at the beginning. So I'm going to try, I'm going to try to give as much leeway to the other translations as possible. But there will be some that I am going to bash and tell you run for the heels. But I'm going to be way more lenient than I typically am because I'm a very opinionated person and I want to try to just temper that down a little bit to be fair. Okay, um, so we're going to do the video first and then we'll have more discussion after. And uh, keep in mind, this guy um, was on the committee for the ESV translation. So what I like about that is he's not a random pastor giving his opinion. This is a guy who's been a translator, been in the room with other translators, argued over things. So, you know, whether or not ESV is your favorite, it's not my favorite, um, but, you know, it, it gives a little more weight because it's something he's done as part of his job. Question. What kind of Bible is the best? It's a ridiculous question. False. Black Bible. <laughs> there are basically two schools of thought. Back. Bibles eat beads. Bibles beads. Battles on the left. Bears do not. What is going on? What are you doing? <laughs> if you hang around Christianity. <laughs> okay. That's not where I really wanted to show you, but <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> In this session, we're going to look at the whole issue of translations. And the, the basic challenge is with all the different translations and how they are at times really different from one another, how can we trust any of them? I mean, if a bunch of translators over here translate a certain way and a bunch of translators over there translate another way and, and there's significant differences, how can you trust anything that they're doing? It's a, it's a real honest question and one that I know a lot of people deal with. Let me start with what are the problems in translation? and it'll kind of show you why things are different. Number one is that the Bible's not written in English. The Bible is written in, uh, the Old Testament is mostly in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and all of the New Testament is written in Greek. So if you want to read the Bible, unless you want to learn these three languages, you need to use a translation. I remember talking to someone once, and uh, the person said, you know, if the King James is good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. And uh, it was, I felt bad, and there was, there's no way to answer that. Uh, if I had answered it, I would have said, well, that's kind of awkward since English wasn't even invented as a language until at least a thousand years after the time of Paul. All right, if you want to look at Middle English or Old English, uh, they're generally taught as foreign languages. If you want to read Chaucer in English, it's almost a foreign language. It's so difficult. So the uh, Bible's not written in English, and so that presents the initial problem. The, the second problem is that languages aren't codes. And what I'm going to say, if, if you know multiple languages, you're going to you're going to say, oh, that's really an odd thing to have to point out. But a lot of people don't know what I'm about to say. When I started learning Greek, I I was think I thought that languages were in a sense codes. That, for example, Bill in Morse code is da did it did it did da did it did da did it. I just assumed that Bill in Greek would be another series of dots and dashes, but they would just be different dots and dashes. In other words, I was thinking that there was an exact equivalence between languages, equivalence of vocabulary and equivalences of grammar. 
And I, I found out very quickly that that is not even remotely the case and that it is virtually impossible to say the same thing in one language that's being said in another. If you listen to simultaneous translators do their work, often you will find that the, the translation takes quite a bit longer to say than the original. And that's because the translator is having to say a few more words to really convey the idea that is being uh, said by the main speaker. Uh, even a word as simple as the. Okay, we have a definite and we have an indefinite article in English, uh, the and a. Greek doesn't even have an indefinite article. There is no Greek word for a or an. So if you want to say an apple, how do you say that? But even the word the, uh, there's a Greek word, ha, is in Greek that is generally trans often translated as the, but sometimes ha is translated as his. Sometimes it's uh, not translated at all because it's a grammatical marker. It has no meaning in terms of uh, uh, actual words. It, it has a grammatical function, but it has no other meaning function to it. So even as something as simple as the word the in English doesn't really correspond with ha in Greek. See, this is just the nature of languages. They're not codes. You can't go smoothly from one language to another. And this is certainly true at the word level, whether it be the word the, but think of the English word can. What, what, think of all the ways the word can, can function. My doctoral supervisor used to say, Americans eat what they can and can what they can't. See, different uses of the word can. Well, there's not a Greek word that has that same kind of flexibility, that same kind of what's called semantic range. Uh, words have bundles of meanings, and a word doesn't have just one meaning, it has a group of meanings. And you can't find, a, except in pretty unusual circumstances, you can't find another word in Greek that has the same set of meanings. So we see this uh, issue crop up in words. Another example is uh, the Greek word sarx. You come across, you're reading Paul and you read about sarx. Or you're reading John and you come across sarx. What does it mean? Well. The basic, what's called gloss, the kind of a basic meaning of the word is flesh. So in John 1, John says, Jesus came and uh, he tabernacled among us and the word became flesh. You know, remember that passage? Well, he's saying he became this stuff that's hanging on our bones, all right? He, he became fully a human being. It's one of the more important verses for the incarnation. Now you read along in Paul though, and sometimes he'll use the word sarx and it's, it's clear that what he really means by it, again, this is another stick in that bundle of meanings. What he means by sark is sinful humanity. Well, see, if you say flesh, you're not conveying what Paul wants to convey, and that is the idea of we have a sinful nature. See, so you don't have an exact equivalence. Recently, the real debate has been around the Greek word doulos. Is it a servant or is it a slave? Are we servants of Christ or are we slaves of Christ? And in some contexts, servants of Christ works well. Sometimes slaves of Christ does work well. But the real problem for an American who's familiar with the pre-war South and our horrid institution of slavery that we had back then, and then if you compare that to what slavery was in the Roman Empire, yes, there was, it's, slavery is always a bad thing. And there was some overlap, but slavery in the Roman Empire largely was really unlike slavery in the southern part of the United States. So the minute you say we are a slave of Christ, it's going to bring up ideas that simply weren't in Paul's mind. So you have this problem of language not being codes at the uh, word level. We also have it at the uh, phrase level. <laughs> and my favorite illustration is the Greek phrase, me genoita. Paul's going along in Romans 6, in verse 50, well, Romans 6, he's been talking about, should we continue in sin that grace can abound? 
um, that some people were claiming Paul was teaching. In other words, should we continue to sin? Because when we sin, we're really doing God a favor because it gives him the opportunity to forgive us and to express his grace towards us. So we should keep on sinning in order that God's grace can, can be seen for what it really is. And Paul re, re, uh, re, uh, responds in the strongest way in Greek. You can say, absolutely no way. And he uses the word may, which is one of the words for no. And he uses uh, a word genoita, which is from the verb meaning uh, I am, or various things. And it's in an optative mood, which means may it not even be a wish. In other words, it is this idea of sinning that grace can abound. May genoita, may that not even be as far away from fact as possible, not even be a wish. I mean, absolutely, positively, no. It's Paul screaming in the text when he says may genoita, no way. Okay, so... How do you translate that? <laughs> well, you're going to find that there is no exact equivalence for the phrase meganoita. Uh, New American Standard says, uh, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace, the other half of, the, of uh, Romans 6. And they say, may it never be. May it never be. That's pretty good. It's pretty strong. Uh, ESV says, by no means. That's mm, okay. The New Living, the NLT, which I'm going to be saying some pretty positive and pretty negative things about, but here it's pretty negative. Uh, they translate meganoite as, as uh, of course not. That's a terrible translation. Uh, it's, of course not. Yeah, whatever. No. It's, it's, Paul's not shouting at all. He's going, of course not. Uh, that's not what the phrase means. The King James actually has what I think is the best phrase, and that is, God forbid. Now, the Greek doesn't have the word for God. The Greek doesn't have the word for forbid. But the phrase, God forbid, is the strongest way in English that I know of to say, absolutely not. Meganoita. So this is the problem of languages, uh, that they're not codes. And we see it at a word-for-word -word level and at a phrase-for-phrase -phrase level. You just can't move back and forth between languages easily. There is a third problem, I would add, to this whole issue of, of translations. And that has to do with the word literal. Now, I don't like the word literal because people misunderstand it. If you ask the average person on the street corner, or maybe I should say on the pew, um, what kind of Bible do you want? Often you will hear, well, I want a literal Bible. And what they understand that to mean uh, is that it's as close to the Greek and Hebrew as we can possibly get. And that if you know, Greek uses three words, uh, English should use three words. It should be as transparent as possible to the Greek and the Hebrew. The problem with that understanding of literal is that that's not what the word means in English. Yeah, L literal doesn't affect form. The word literal has to do with meaning. Now, this is a definition from Webster uh, for the word literal. It's in accordance with involving or being the primary or strict meaning of a word. So a literal Bible is one that conveys exactly the same meaning as the original but not necessarily in the same form. So people use the word literal uh, inaccurately. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you want a literal translation, here's John 3:16. In this manner, for he loved the God, the world, so that the Son, the only he gave, in order that each the believing into him not perish, but have life eternal. All right. Now, we have Bibles that translate that way. They're called interlinears. And they're not really Bibles. They're, they're interlinears because... Nobody can read that. Nobody can understand it, right? So uh, be careful with the word literal. Uh, the, the English word has to do with the meaning. And we want a literal Bible. We want a Bible that conveys the same meaning. The question is, how do you convey the same meaning? You know, another example of this literal uh, issue is something that happened to me in Germany. I went to Germany uh, to learn German. 
and <laughs> most of my friends were much more advanced in their German studies than I was. And so they were very fluent in the language. And it was cold one day and we were outside in a park and I wanted to say something in German because that's what you're supposed to do. And so I said, well, I want to say I'm cold. So I is ich, um, am is bin, and cold is kalt. So I said, hmm, ich bin kalt. And my friends were rolling on the floor laughing. They were laughing and laughing. I said, what, what did I say? I, ich bin kalt. I am cold. That, that, that's how you say it. And when my friends finally regained their composure, they said, oh, Bill, if you want to say that you're cold, you say in German, it is to me cold. Es ist zu mir kalt. And forgive my poor German pronunciation, my German friends. But anyway, it is to me cold. Uh, I said, what did I say? They said, you said that you're sexually frigid. Well, ich bin kalt, that's what it means. So you understand the problem of our, our misunderstanding of the English word literal. All right. So that's the problems. And so the question is, how do we solve it? How, what, what do we do when we do uh, translation? Basically, every translation has a translation philosophy. Now, I've been on two translation committees. I was the New Testament chair of the ESV for the first 10 years, and I'm currently on the NIV translation committee. And so I'm going to use ESV and NIV because I'm most familiar with it. These two translations and the other ones as well all have a translation philosophy. They, they've come to an understanding of how they want to translate the Bible. And this is a bit of a simplification, but this is the best way I know to explain it. Think of yourself on the edge of a knife and you're translating along and, and everybody tries to go word for word if they can. They, they try to just follow the Greek. But what happens when you come to a passage that you can't go word for word? What, what happens when the grammar is too complicated or the vocabulary is too complicated? Or if you go word for word, you will miscommunicate. Uh, what happens in that situation? What, what do you do? Well, the translation philosophy establishes that. And what will happen in translations is that when, it, when translators come to this, these difficult passages where you just can't go word for word, they are going to fall off one side or other of the knife blade. And they're either going to fall over on the side of words or they're going to fall over on the side of meaning. The ESV falls over in the side of words. The NIV falls over in the side of meaning. To state it another way, when we come to a passage that's a little difficult, the ESV's tendency is to say, well, we're just going to translate the words. That's the function of the translator. And the Bible student or the pastor is going to have to help people understand what those words mean. It's a perfectly legitimate way to translate the Bible. The NIV is going to fall on the other side and say, no, the Bible needs to be understandable by people. It needs to um, hit English readers in the same way that the Greek hit Greek readers. And that means we have to work, um, not harder, but work a little differently to get the same meaning across. But the point is, translations, when they can't stay on the edge of that knife, are going to fall over into the sides of words, and that's the NASB and the ESV or they're going to fall over on the side of meaning, which is the NIV and the NLT, for example, okay? Uh, here's an example. A very important word is hilasterion, and hilasterion describes what Christ accomplished on the cross. What was he doing there? Uh, you can see, for example, in Romans 3.25. So they come along, and we hit hilasterion. Well, the old RSV translated with one word, expiation. Expiation means that the force of what Christ did on the cross was directed towards human guilt and our ability to accept forgiveness. ESV comes along and says, no, it's not expiation, it's propitiation. That what Christ did on the cross um, is directed towards God's wrath and appeasing God's wrath uh, caused by our sin. 
Okay, see, but both those translations fell over on the side of wor words, excuse me, <coughs> to, to convey hilasterion. Now, I still remember on the ESV, we actually opened up Webster's and we read propitiation. And I said, is that, we said, is that accurate? We said, yeah, that, that's what we think hilasterion means. And so we translated it propitiation. The NIV comes along and it says, no, 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 that people don't know what expiation or propitiation mean, means. What can we translate it with? And this is one of the really great translations of the NIV. It, it translated atoning hilasterion uh, as an atoning sacrifice. That's what Christ did on the cross. It was a sacrifice that atoned for our sins. But even that didn't convey all the meaning because hilasterion also refers to the place of atonement. So in the temple, the place of the atonement, the hilasterion, was the top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood was sprinkled, uh, where forgiveness was granted. For the Christian, the hilasterion is the right, it's cross. So it's just not human guilt and God's wrath against sin. It's the cross. And atoning sacrifice gets some of that, but not all of it. It's interesting, the uh, initial release of the New Living Translation translated hilasterion with a very long phrase. They said it was to take the punishment of our sins and to satisfy God's anger against sin. <laughs> uh, pretty expansive. But you see, they're trying to get the meaning of hilasterion across. In the second uh, release of the NLT, they shortened it to sacrifice for sin. But you can see what's happening. And the point of the illustration is we came to a word, in this case, hilasterion, and the RSV and the ESV went over and tried to find a single word. The NIV and the NLT went over the other side to try to convey the meaning of that word. This could, I could give you thousands of these kinds of illustrations, both with words and phrases and grammar and whatnot, but I think you understand what I'm talking about. So that's what a translation philosophy is. Uh, what side are we going to err on? Okay. There's obviously a lot of other things involved in a philosophy, but I think that's the heart of the issue. Okay, so basically, I'm going to break translations down into four different categories. It's, it's general to break them down into two, but I, I think we have to have four. You'll see why in a second. Uh, the first, first grouping of translations are what are called formal equivalents. And the New American Standard and the ESV are good examples of formal equivalence. And by formal equivalence, we're talking about a grammatical equivalence. That if there's seven words in Greek, we're going to try to use seven words in English. If it's a participle in Greek, we're going to try to use a participle in English. Uh, part of formal equivalence is something called concordance, where we try to use the same English word for the same Greek word, so it's trans all transparent, so that when you see city in the NASB, you know that it's translating polis. Uh, but it's a, it's a formal equivalence, a formal grammatical equivalence that as much as possible, uh, we are going to stick to the Greek and to the Hebrew. And, and formal equivalent translations all agree that it's not always possible. There are idioms and there are uh, other ways in which Greek will express itself that you can't do this word for word thing. But for the most part, uh, we're going to really try. There's some really good things about formal equivalents. One of them is that they're very transparent to the Greek and to the Hebrew. Uh, that when you read, if you know Greek and you're reading the NASB and the ESV, you can usually see what's going on in the Greek and Hebrew behind the English. And, and that's, that's a good thing. Although I would point out, I hear some people say, well, I like these formal equivalent translations because um, they're transparent to the Greek and the Hebrew. And I'll usually say, oh, you know Greek and the Hebrew? And often they say, well, no. I go, well, then what does it matter? And, and I wonder why you're saying it's, it's good for me to be reading the ESV because I can see the, I, can, I know that there's a Greek structure visible behind the English if I don't know what the Greek structure is. Uh, I suspect there's something else going on in that person. But anyway, uh, it is a good point to, to be kind of transparent. And in fact, in the NASB, 
uh, they have this policy of italics that when they just flat out, well, when they insert a word where there's no corresponding English word to it, uh, they put it in italics so you can see that they're adding uh, to their translation. The other good thing about formal equivalents is that they're less interpretive. In other words, if, if you just want to say expiation or propitiation and leave it at that, you, you still have had to do some interpretation, right? You've had to choose between expiation and propitiation. So uh, th there is some interpretation, but there's less interpretation in these translations than in some of the others. Uh, if, if anyone, by the way, ever says to you, oh, my, I use the Bible that, that is not interpretive. It doesn't interpret. It just gives me what the Greek and Hebrew says. Um, they don't know what they're talking about. That's absolutely impossible, okay? Categorically impossible. All translation involves interpretation, expiation or propitiation. There's no way to get around it. I'm gonna show you some other examples in a second. Um, all translations are interpretive. Formal equivalent translations tend to be a little less interpretive, but they're still interpretive. But anyway, those are the, the good points. They're transparent and they're less interpretive. But there's also some pretty serious problems with formal equivalent translations. Number one is that uh, they're often terrible English. Every once in a while I'll read a sentence and I'll go, oh, that's not even English. That's not how anybody talks. So we, you run the real problem of, of, of really butchered English for the sake of sticking to the Greek and to the Hebrew. But a second problem is that formal equivalent translations, especially when it comes to concordance, can obscure meaning. I mean, the, the, their strong suit is that they're less interpretive and they're not, uh, they're not interpreting in order to, to get the, the meaning out. They're, they're letting you do the interpretation, so they say. Um, but the point is that sometimes these translations, NASB and, and ESV, can actually obscure meaning as well. Uh, the best example I know is the NASB's translation of Paulus. Uh, Paulus occurs 163 times in the New Testament, and every single time the NASB translates it city. Okay, that's concordance. They call Nazareth a city. Do you know how many people lived in Nazareth in Jesus' day? Well, archaeology suggests that it was about 600. Well, if you have 600 people living in one place, it's not a city, right? Cities are big. Uh, I live near Vancouver. It's a couple hundred thousand. Portland is a million or so across the river. I mean, cities are big. 600 people is a, a village or a, a hamlet or maybe a white spot in a road. I don't know. Uh, but it's not a city. And so sometimes uh, these translations will obscure meaning, especially when it comes to concordance. A third problem with uh, functional, I mean, with formal equivalent translations, and again, it's, it's a prompt for all the translations, but it really is one for formal equivalent, it is that sometimes it's simply not possible. Sometimes you have to interpret it. There's no choice. You, you, you can't say, I'm going to be neutral, I'm going to be vanilla, I'm going to be ambiguous. I, mean, I remember in the ESV, if we had an ambiguous Greek phrase, we would look for an ambiguous, a similarly ambiguous English phrase. And sometimes we'd find one, that'd be great. But usually you can't. And usually on these things, you have to interpret. Let me give you an example. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul is going through the requirements for church leaders. So he starts with elders and goes through their requirements. And then he gets to deacons. And he goes and he's going through giving the qualifications for what it takes to be a deacon in a church. And you get to verse 11, and the Greek word is, is gynikos, uh, it's gune. And the problem is that gune can be translated either wife or woman. There is no English word for both of those. You, you have to choose. And the, the choice is significant. In uh, the RSV, they translated, uh, the women likewise must be serious, no slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, if, if Gune is translated as women, who are the women? Well, it has to be the deaconesses. 
All right. Now, and we know that there were female deacons very early in the church. Actually, about the first three to four hundred years, uh, there were a lot of deaconesses that performed deaconesses that performed very important functions. It's interesting. The feminine form of the word deacon in Greek apparently wasn't created till about the three hundreds. So women were called deacons in the early church. Um, I remember when, in, when I was pastoring, uh, they were doing the bylaws. They wanted to talk about deaconesses, and I said, "No, we're not going to genderize this thing. Uh, women and men together." Are deacons. That's what how the Bible treats it. Anyway, that's reading Gune here as women, i.e. deaconesses. The ESV comes along, and I'm sure that, I didn't check, but I'm sure there's a footnote on this, but it says their wives likewise must be dignified. Well, in other words, we're still talking about deacons. Now we're talking about the deacon's wives, and Paul will go on to talk about the deacon's children and the family life. But the point is you have to choose. You, you, there is no English word that can mean woman or wife. You, you have to choose. Another really good example is John 2.4. This is the story of Jesus at the wedding in Cana. And uh, this is, they ran out of wine. And so in verse 4, uh, the NASB translates, And Jesus said to her, to his mom, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. It's the same Greek word, uh, guni, by the way. Um, woman. Now, in English... In modern English, there's only one way to hear that phrase, right? And that is pejorative. Mary says, hey, Jesus, they run out of oil, uh, wine. Do something about it, is the implication. Jesus says, woman. So the only way to hear that in English is in a pejorative, negative, demeaning way, in a way that Jesus would have never talked to his mom, all right? I never would have, in a million years would have Jesus been this cruel to his mom. Okay, so just saying woman miscommunicates, doesn't it? It's interesting, in the NIV, they try, I wasn't on the committee when this happened, but it's a pretty good translation. Uh, they said, dear woman. Now, there's no Greek word for dear, but they're trying to soften the woman and, and how we hear it in English. It's interesting, the NLT, they simply give up. And they say, and I understand why, <laughs> there's simply no way to translate gune as woman and, and, and have it communicate properly. Um, so they say, how does that concern you and me, Jesus asked. So they simply drop uh, the gune completely out because there is no way to say it in English. So the, the point being that even uh, formal equivalent translations will fail at times and will have to be interpretive. And I mean, they know that, this is not a surprise, but there's this thought out there that, well, if I have a formal equivalent translation, it's not interpretive. That's simply not true. There's an old Italian proverb that translated into English is that translators are traitors. And I'm told by people who know Italian that even in moving from Italian to uh, English, you lose something. Uh, this confirming the, the, the truth of the maxim. Translators are traitors. In other words, we're all traitors to the meaning of the original text. Um, we might over-translate a little, do a little more work to convey the meaning, or we might under-translate a little, uh, not convey all the meaning of the English. But it, it's virtually impossible to hit the nail on the head when it comes to translations. And so there's always a little bit of traitor going on. Uh, in terms of the original meaning of the text. Anyway, that is uh, formal equivalent translations, good and bad. The next main category is called functional equivalent translations, or now they're using more of the word dynamic equivalent translations. And the NIV and perhaps the NLT, although I'll talk about that in a bit, fit into this category. In a functional equivalent, they're not concerned about the grammar. They don't care if this is a participle. They don't care if it's seven words in Greek. The question is, what is the Greek saying? What does it mean? And what words do I use to convey the same meaning in English? Okay, so that's, that's the basic distinction. They're falling on that side of the knife. 
And there are some really good things about functional equivalent translations. One is that they do convey meaning. They're understandable. Uh, they, they make sense. Remember, my, my son, was my, when he was younger, was reading a, functional, a formal equivalent translation. And he came to me and said, Dad, I don't understand it. So I went and bought him an NLT. And he, I love it. I can actually understand it. So that's the advantage of these functional equivalent translations. They're much more understandable because the translators are being a little more interpretive to do a little bit better job at conveying the meaning of the passage. And they tend to be better English. Uh, they don't make the disciples or the writers sound uh, ignorant. <laughs> they, they, it's, it's good. they write in proper English and good English. The problem with functional equivalent translations, as you might expect, is that they can become too interpretive. In other words, in an attempt to get the meaning across, um, in terms, we have to make decisions or we have to add in words to convey that meaning. And so there's a little more of the translator present in a uh, functional equivalent translation. Again, let me give you an example. And, and let me stress, all translations are interpretive. It's not like this is a problem just with functional equivalent translations. It's, it's a problem with all. But uh, let me give you an example. Have you ever heard someone say, well, if a person's divorced, uh, they can't be an elder in the church? And you say, well, where does the Bible say that? Oh, it's 1 Timothy 3.2. Okay, let me, let's clear this up right from the beginning. The word divorce does not occur in 1 Timothy 3.2. Uh, the word married doesn't occur in 1 Timothy 3.2. It's not there. You can get it in a linear look if you don't believe me. Uh, those words don't exist. If you go word for word, the requirement for an elder is that he be of one of woman man or of one of wife husband. In other words, the, the word for woman can also be wife. The word for man can also be husband. But there's an added problem. If that's not hard enough, there's an added problem. And that is, in English, word order is used to convey meaning. So if you have a verb, you want to know who's doing the action of the verb, who the subject is, you look in front of it. If you want to see who's receiving the action of the verb, um, the direct object, you look at the, at the word that follows it, right? So word order affects meaning. In Greek, there's a different linkage at work so that the subject can come after the verb, the direct object can come before the verb, they can all come at the end of the sentence, uh, they can be all over the place. There is a standard order for Greek sentences, but you really don't have to, to follow it at all. What you do then in Greek, one of the things that determines order is that when you want to emphasize something, you move it to the front of the sentence. And again, because of this linkage system, they call case endings, uh, it, you can push the, the word or the phrase that you want to emphasize forward and then put the subject and direct object or whatever uh, later. Uh, we do the same thing somewhat in English, uh, for by grace you have been saved. You hear the emphasis? It's by grace, subject you, uh, been saved, verb. So, I mean, English can do it a little, but Greek can do it a lot. And so usually the, the words at the beginning of a sentence are the ones that have slightly more emphasis. The reason that's important is that the emphasis in this requirement is on one, of one of woman, man, or of one of wife, husband. Okay, how are you going to translate that? <laughs> you have to be interpretive, and you have to be really interpretive. The odd thing in this phrase is that we can't find this phrase anywhere in Greek literature. We can go to the Perseus Project and we, and we can do uh, searches for this phrase. It doesn't come up anywhere in any known Greek literature. Uh, one of the questions I have for Paul is, why did you use such an odd phrase? Now, my guess is you'll say, oh, it was kind of a slang expression, Bill. And if you really knew Greek, you wouldn't know what I was saying. But um, it's, we don't know what this expression means, not, not for sure. And that's why when people say an elder can't be divorced, uh, they need a little dose of Greek and a larger dose of humility because we don't know for sure what the passage says, all right? But look at the translations. ESV translates, therefore an overseer 
uh, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. So we took the position that it's a husband, not a man, a wife, not a woman. And we said, as a husband and one wife, we try to stay as vanilla as we could. But you notice even in doing that, we've lost all the emphasis on one. We say a husband and one wife, you don't hear the emphasis on one. You almost hear the emphasis they have to be married, which is historically one of the positions, uh, interpretive positions on this verse. It's for the most part discounted today. But you lose the emphasis on the one. But it's really interesting to look at the other translations. The new RSV says married only once. Wow. See what they're doing? They're, they're keying off the, the emphatic position of the one, and they're taking it as wife and husband. The 1984 version of the NIV says, the husband of but one wife. Where's the word but from? Emphatic position of one. The New Living, and I think they're dead right on this one, is that he must be faithful to his wife. Now, we have an expression today, a one-woman kind of guy. Um, and I'm not saying that's the equivalent, in, I mean, Anyway, they're not exactly the same thing. But it gets at what I think Paul is saying, that we're talking that an elder, an overseer, must be faithful. Uh, the, the false teachers in Ephesus were sexually active, especially among the young widows. And Paul is saying, no, that's not what an elder is. An elder is somebody who's faithful to his wife, which is also the translation of the 2011 NIV. So the, the point, though, of this, and this, that was just an illustration, but the point is that in functional equivalent, as in all translations, they have to be interpretive, and sometimes um, if they're really committed to conveying the meaning, uh, they have to be a lot more uh, interpretive than even they're probably comfortable with doing. There is a third category, and I would just call it, I'm going to call it paraphrase. The word paraphrase is used in a lot of different ways, uh, but it's the only word I can think of to describe this third category. And perhaps the New Living belongs in this. The New Living is right in between these two categories, but in, there are places where it's incredibly paraphrastic. Um, J.B. Phillips' translation, a fantastic translation. Uh, my mom became a Christian reading J.B. Phillips and C.S. Lewis, so I'm, I, I love J.B. Phillips. Uh, and the translation is really good, but it is very paraphrastic. It's very interpretive. It, it reads in very much modern, in his case, British English. Um, and these are good if you understand what's going on. Uh, the, the, the good part is that it often will say things in, in different ways that it helps you look at the verse a different way. Let me give an example. In Romans 12, 2, the NIV says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, very famous verse. Phillips comes along and says, Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. All right. Uh, squeeze, transformed. Uh, remold, renewing. Okay, that's that's pushing it. It's, it's not strictly a translation. It's, it's more a paraphrase. But it really helps you understand, and in this case, very accurately understand, what uh, Paul is saying. And by the way, let me just mention on the side about Phillips. Uh, all, all of the translations, other than Phillips and the living, uh, were done are done by committees. And I would never try to do a translation by myself. Not one that I was going to be you know, disseminated widely and used. Uh, you need committees because we all hear things differently. We all have different registers. And so we want to uh, bounce words off. And so many times in committee meetings, uh, I'll say, well, I think we should use this word. And someone will look at me and go, Bill, I think I hear that word totally different than you. And, and they do. So committees are generally done, translations are generally done by committees. That's what makes J.B. Phillips so unusual, that he was able to produce a, a reliable paraphrase by himself. But anyway, um, that's, that's what paraphrases are good for. They're, they're so understandable, and they uh, are helpful to you to convey meaning. Uh, what's, what's bad about them is that they're usually very interpretive. And when you read them, you don't know whether you're reading the Bible 
or you're reading additional words that are interpretive in terms of the meaning. And that's why I would never study from an NLT or for Phillips. Now, I love to read them, and I'm going to talk in my conclusion about when you should read them. But I, there's just so much of the translator in these paraphrases that you have to be very, very careful. Uh, you certainly can't do word studies uh, based on a paraphrase because you don't know whether that word is the translator's uh, added in word or whether it actually is in the Bible. Let me give you an example. I came across this the other day in Acts 27, 17. Paul's on his trip to Rome, and they're in the middle of the storm. They're fearing shipwreck. And the ESV translates verse 17 this way. It says, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, which is what the Greek says, on the Sirtis, and it capitalizes the S because it's a place. They lowered the gear, which is kind of an odd translation. It's the sea anchors. I don't know why we didn't say sea anchors. But anyway, uh, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Well, that's not English, right? And thus they were driven along. Well, it means they were driven along uh, toward the Sirtis with the sea anchors slowing them down. But you know, nobody says, and thus they were driven along. But anyway, um, they translated the Sirtis. The NIV came along, and again, I wasn't on the committee when this happened, but I, I can hear the conversation. What's the Sirtis? Well, in the ESV, they said, well, go look it up. NIV goes, ah, we need to fall off from the side of meaning here. So they translated it. They, meaning the soldiers, uh, sailors, were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. Okay, so the Sirtis is a place where there are sandbars uh, that would, the Mediterranean gets very shallow there. The NLT comes along and says, no, we need to fall further off the side of the knife blade. And they translate, they were afraid of being driven across the sandbars of Sirtis off the African coast. Uh, off the African coast. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. Uh, and personally, I think that the NLT crossed over the line between translator and expositor, translator and commentary, uh, translator and study Bible. Uh, it's, just, it's, not, it, it, it's hard enough to read the sandbars of Sirtis, uh, but it's really hard to read off the coast of, of North Africa. So it, does it help you understand what's going on? Does it help you know where the ship was headed? Absolutely. Is it what the Bible says? Absolutely not. Now, that's an extreme example for the NLT. Um, in fact, it's one of the most extreme examples I found. But it illustrates uh, what's good and bad about paraphrases, right? That they, uh, they're so interpretive. They're so trying to help you understand the meaning. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, it's a good thing to help people try to understand what the Bible means. Uh, you just have to be aware that's what's going on in these paraphrases. There is a fourth category, and I just had to put this in there, uh, that belongs for the original Living Bible and the message. And I just call them running commentaries. Uh, there is simply so much of Kenneth Taylor in the living. And then the living has a, God used the living as one of the tools to save thousands of people to heaven, into heaven. I mean, there's so many good things in it, but there is so much Kenneth Taylor in the message that you, you can't study from it. Uh, there's so much of Eugene Peterson in the message that you can't study from it. And what I tell people is read them to see what the translators think it means. Or maybe more modern ways of expressing biblical truths. Uh, but I, I would never call them the, a Bible. They're more running commentaries. Let me give you a, a single test case. And uh, this will kind of summarize the kinds of issues. In Romans 16, 16, Paul tells the Roman church to greet one another. In the NIV, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, what on earth is a holy kiss? And it is the word holy. Now, that's the Greek word behind it. What's a holy kiss? Well, see, that doesn't really convey meaning, does it? Because I, I don't know what a holy kiss is. The Good News Bible, later called the TEV, 
comes along and says, greet one another with a brotherly kiss. See, they're interpreting the word holy to mean brotherly in the way that Christians, brothers and sisters, would greet one another. That's pretty good, actually. It's, it's, holy miscommunicates. Brotherly at least gets closer to what the meaning is. Now, later on, the good news changed it to say, greet one another with a kiss of peace, which strikes me as a very odd translation. My, my guess is they wanted to get away from the word brother, and so brotherly kiss went to kiss of peace. It's a vastly inferior, I would argue, translation. The original living says, shake hands warmly with each other. Now, before you snicker, that's a really good translation. Shake hands warmly with each other. I'll come back and tell you why. Um, Philip says, give each other a hearty handshake all around. <laughs> I'm assuming that's more British than American English, but give each other a hearty handshake all around. The second edition of the NLT says, greet each other in Christian love. Again, just like they did with woman in John 2, they simply threw out the idea of a kiss. They said there's no way to convey what a holy kiss is, so just greet one another in Christian love. All right, how would you translate holy kiss? <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, how would you do that? Well, I think what Paul is meaning is that in church, in the church assembly, uh, in when brothers and sisters are together, they are to greet each other in the standard way in which people greet each other, but with affection, with purity, perhaps. Um, I guess today it's a hug. I, I don't really like, uh, I don't like hugging other women. I'm sorry. I tell people I'm married. I don't do that. Uh, that's just me. Uh, especially when I was a pastor, I was very uncomfortable with this hug, hug, hug stuff. But that, that's me, okay? Um, I like to shake people's hands. I, I think, I, I wish we could bring a good hearty handshake back. Uh, but the problem is, when I go to shake a younger person's hand and they're expecting a hug, it's kind of like, that was weird. It's almost taken in a negative sense now. So, how do you greet one another in Christian love? What is the standard way? Uh, maybe it's a hug. It's a, I guess I'm okay with that. But, um, you know, the hearty handshake, the, the living, shake hands warmly with each other. Greet each other and really mean it. That's what Paul's telling the Roman church. How are you going to translate it? Well, it all depends upon your translation philosophy. By the way, on the online uh, lecture, uh, there's a chart of translations and where they kind of fit along this continuum. So if you want to see at least where I think they belong, uh, then you can, you can do that. Before I close, though, on this whole issue, I, I want to say one other thing, and it's just because it came up the other day in discussion. And if it had just come up in normal discussion with you know, someone at the barbershop or whatever, uh, I would have dismissed it. But this came from someone that was raised in a Christian, a, a conservative Christian home. And I was shocked to hear what turns out, it was a, happened to be a, a, a woman, it happened, what she said. Basically, she, she said that we can't really know what the words of the Greek and Hebrew mean since we don't live in the same cultural context. And therefore, we can't make any definitive statements about what anything in the Bible means. Well, I've never heard this kind of historical or linguistic agnosticism in my life. But what she was saying was that because the Bible is written in a different context, we really have no idea what it means. Uh, boy, it's hard to know how to respond to that. Um, it, it is a totally unrealistic view of language and of history, all right? Can I understand what anyone means in German? Well, I may not understand exactly what they mean. I may not catch all the nuances. But if you know the language, you can catch the gist of what's being said. It, you're not completely blind to what they're trying to convey, right? Um, 
Uh, and when we talk about cultural differences, according to this position, no man can understand what any woman says or vice versa. Because in broad, general, stereotypical terms that are only generally true, <laughs> be careful, um, women and men have different gender cultures. And does that mean you can't understand them? Well, there are a time, and Robin and I have been married over 33 years now. Uh, we're very good at communicating. And there's still at times we look at each other and go, I have no idea what you just said. We can repeat the words, but we have no idea what they meant. Well, yeah, I mean, even though there's different cultures, even though if you're dealing with different languages, even if our knowledge isn't exact, you can certainly understand, especially if you keep talking about it, uh, the gist of what the other person's saying. All right? It's, we don't need to be this negative. You know, the Google Translator, I'm told, translates a billion words a day. Somebody thinks that you can convey meaning from one language to another. All right? Um, but this hyper-agnostic view of language is just simply, it's, it's untenable. It, it doesn't make any sense at all. Our knowledge of the Greek and Hebrew may not be perfect, but it's pretty close. Pretty close. All right. So let me conclude. Uh, three things. Number one, you need to understand the limitations of a translation. And if you use the NASV or the ESV, uh, you need to understand their pros but their, and their cons, though, their limitations. If you use an NIV or an NLT, then you also need to understand uh, what they're good at doing and what the challenges are of that kind of translation. You have to know their limitations. Second of all, please, you can trust your Bibles. Uh, my experience in translations, I, I've absolutely loved doing translation work. And my experience in translations is that there's always a reason. I have never found a random translation, whether it's the uh, NASB on one end or the NLT on the other. When I look at them, if I look at them long enough, and if I do my exegesis uh, and my word studies uh, sufficient, I can always go, oh, that's why they do what they do, or you know, that's why the NLT does what it does. I may agree or disagree, that's not the point. The point is that there's always reasons. And I have to tell you, um, I obviously know all the ESV translators, I know all the current NIV translators, I know most of the Holman Christian Standard translators, um, I know a lot of the NLT guys and gals. Um, these translators are good people. They love the Lord, as far as I know. Uh, they certainly all have a very high view of Scripture. They're certainly all very good scholars, and they don't do random. They don't do random. There's reasons for why they do what they do. And, and so when I hear someone ripping into a translation as if the translators are incompetent, uh, that tells me a lot more about the person speaking than the translator. Um, translations are done by good people in good committees. It's a slow, methodical, sometimes painful process. And the, what is produced is very trustworthy. I wrote a book called Greek for the Rest of Us, and it was basically learn enough Greek so you can make sense of your computer programs. Um, so you can do Greek word studies and understand better commentaries, that kind of thing. And when I went into it, I went in with, I did a tremendous amount of comparison of the different translations. And I, I had a hoot doing this. I really, really enjoyed it. And I went in expecting to find all kinds of contradictions. I didn't find that. In fact, I found very, very few contradictions among the translations. What I found was that translations like the NESB and the ESV tend to be a little more ambiguous in these problem passages. Translations like the NIV and the NLT tend to be a little more specific. You know, the love of Christ constrains me. Well, is that my love for Christ or Christ's love for me? 
Um, you know, on these more word for word, they're just gonna say love of Christ and you gotta figure it out. Get over to the NLT, they're gonna take a position. The NLT hates ambiguity. It, it wants to communicate clearly and precisely. And one way to do that is to remove ambiguity. And so when there's an ambiguous Greek construction, they take an interpretive position, I think almost always, almost always. But that's what I found as you translate these things. Uh, the Sirtis, the sandbars of the Sirtis, the sandbars of the Sirtis off the African coast. Um, some are more ambiguous, others are more specific. That, that's the difference that I found in translations. But they don't disagree with each other. It's an issue of ambiguity and specificity. So you can trust uh, all of these standard Bible translations. Um, good people, good work. Just different translation philosophies. And thirdly, let me really encourage you to always read two Bibles. Um, I think a really good reading pattern is to pick up the ESV or the NIV and make that your dominant Bible. Make that your study Bible. And that's the one you highlight and mark up and write notes in and you, and you keep. Um, you need to focus in uh, for your study on one translation. But then what you should always do is have a second uh, version that is in a different grouping. So if you're in the ESV and NIV for your study Bible, get an NLT or, or get a Phillips and read it as a balance. Certainly, if you like to read the NLTs, your standard Bible, get an NIV or an ESV or a Holman Christian, uh, something that will provide a balance, a different way of looking. But I would really encourage you to, um, to always have two Bibles, a main one and then a second one just to kind of help you see verses from a different standpoint. But the main point of the session is simply, Bibles are different not contradictory, but different, because there's different translation philosophies. Do you err on the side of words, or do you err on the side of meaning? Know where your Bible fits in that continuum, and read it, and enjoy it, and trust it. Okay, everyone hear me? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to agree with a lot of what he said, um, not everything. I'm not going to take an extreme opposite view. I'm similar to him in a lot of things, but um, I do have some stronger opinions. Like I said, I'll, I'll label my opinions as opinions, but I wanted to show you that so that you had someone that wasn't me that had a, a different view, not super different, still safe, but different to me so that this wasn't a completely biased session. Um, I will repeat some of the things that he said, um, but I may just explain them a little bit differently. And also uh, some of the things I'm gonna say, they're not uniquely my opinion either. So I showed you a video of someone who is a little more loose with, hey, you guys can read whatever, but there are a lot of people that are more on my side with a little bit more stricter, but I would stay away from any person who says this one one translation is the only translation and there's no other translation um that's too extreme but besides those one version people you get people who side more on oh you can read whatever and it's all good and those are like oh we have to have some higher standards um so <clears throat> i also have some three things to keep in mind uh some of them are he's already said um, so the three things are uh, translation style, which he covered. Two is the texts that were used in those translations, which he didn't even mention at all. And then three, whether the translation was translated by an individual or a committee. 
So the ones that he spoke on, I'm only going to very briefly review. Shouldn't have done that because I need this. There we go. So um, I'm going to do those three in random order. But the translation versus individual one, um, this is my advice, but I think most people would agree. Try to steer away from any translation that's a one person translation, because then you're just getting a lot of their personal bias, even if their intention was 100% pure, right? I mean, can you imagine a Cassandra Bible? Just for a second, imagine that. You will hear me in that Bible, right? Like, I'm very opinionated. I'm going to make sure what I believe is the interpretation is going to be in my version, right? So I have two examples here. I forgot to um, mirror my screen, so I'm sorry. This is going to be backwards for you guys. Uh, the complete Jewish study Bible. I got this because it had like descriptions of, oh, they'll explain customs and stuff, which I love. And I started to read this and I was like, man, this is a very strong undertone to it. And then I went and read um, the first few pages before Genesis. And I found out it was translated by one guy who's like a, a Messianic Jew. And yeah, so that's why it was very strong one-sided. So I stopped reading it because I don't like being forced into an interpretation. Um, and then of course, so many people's favorite, the message. Um, I have one, so I might, that may shock some people. Um, it is written by one person, translated by one person. I don't even know if he has any translating credentials. Um, if you read his thing at the beginning of his Bible, um, he explains that he wanted to do something that multiple people could understand because so many people in his congregation just said, oh, we struggle to understand the Bible. Interesting note. Um, and this is the only reason I'll give this guy a little grace is in the beginning of this book, he states, please don't use this forever as your Bible. He says, if you're a new believer and you're struggling to read the Bible, use this. But once you've gained some maturity, please don't study from this. This is not a study Bible. This is just an introductory thing, which helped me gain a little respect for him. And I wasn't so angry anymore after I read that. But this is my opinion, but this is more of a command opinion. If this is the only Bible you ever read, you got some serious problems because this is an extreme paraphrase of the word of God. And it is written by one person and it is very one-sided in opinions, right? So it's okay to have one. It's okay to occasionally read it. Please don't study from it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, the next thing that I'm going to go into, uh, I'm going to share my screen again, is the translation style, which he covered, but um, he mentioned um, showing you guys a chart, uh, which obviously you can see. So I'm going to share that with you. I don't actually know if this was his chart, but you can find these all over the, the internet. Um, 
So this is a nice, easy chart to show you the broad range that most Bibles fall into. This is obviously not all translations because there's just so many, but these are some of the most common ones, um, ranging from word for word, which the most extreme is interlinear, which you mentioned literally where they write the words underneath and it doesn't actually make, it doesn't make a full sentence. And then you have NASB and King James. Um, also, the order of these changes in different graphs, like some people will put King James higher than ESV and stuff like that, but they'll be in the same categories. Um, then we go through Thoughtful Thought, which we have the NIV, um, the NRSV, which some common translations. <clears throat> and then we're bordering paraphrase, which has the message right at the end in the red zone. Mm. <laughs> and uh, the NLT over here. Um, I'm part of some other Bible studies and the other Bible study I'm in, everyone loves the NLT and, uh, the guy in the video, he was a, a bit more, um, soft than I would have been on it though. He did point out, um, you know, some, some problems it has. So although Okay, so here's my opinion, okay? This is my opinion. I told you I'm gonna tell you before, but this is my opinion. I strongly do not like thought for thought translations. I hate paraphrase. I think that's going really far, but I don't like thought for thought. I understand the intention of those committees and I think their intention was honorable. I don't think any of them had evil in their hearts when they decided to make the NIV or the NAS, oh, not the NASB, the um, HCSB or whatever. I don't think they had this terrible intention, okay? I do think they had good intentions. They wanted to make a Bible understandable. Um, me personally, I really view the Bible as God's word. And I think if you really believe it's inspired, then every, every single word is inspired, in my opinion. Now, of course, we take into consideration what he said, that because we're translating into a new language, there's always going to be things that we can't translate word for word. And I'm, I'll give grace for that. But I think that we can still find that in, in, oh, sorry, in this section here in word for word, because people will look at it and go, oh, there's not really a word. What word are we gonna use? And so there's variation, but you're still within the context of, we're trying to be very literal and not fall too much on interpretation. Um, I've told you guys this before, but there's curses in the Bible about adding to God's word or removing from God's word. And like I said, I would hate to be a translator because that would terrify me because by default, you're going to do that to some extent. And it's always that thought of, am I doing it in a safe way that God's like, it's okay. I know you have to translate into another language or am I bordering on, you know, doing exactly what he told me not to do. Um, my other problem with thought for thought is that people typically who read them, and if you're one of these, please forgive me. But typically, I find that people who read Thought for Thought, 
they don't keep in mind that they are more interpretive Bibles. So what happens is they read a verse and their mind doesn't even consider that it could mean anything else than what it says, okay? So it won't even occur to you to investigate it because it makes complete sense. Now, word for word might be more difficult to understand, but when you get stuck, you know you're stuck. You're, you know that mm, this is a difficult verse. And so now the onus is on you to go and investigate it. And so when people bring up things like, oh, well, people might struggle to understand what this concept means. What does propitiation mean? Pick up your phone and Google it. Like you don't even have to go to a library anymore, you know? So I think word for word Bibles encourage people to study their Bibles, to really try and understand what's going on. The benefit of when you don't understand something is that it's now up to you and your intelligence, you and your ability to research and study, and, and we cannot take this away, the ability of the Holy Spirit to interpret something for you. And so my opinion personally is I would rather read something that was more word for word and trust God to take the difficult words that he chose for a specific reason and reveal that to me. And that revealed word to me, if it truly is from God, should be confirmed by outside sources that also received the same interpretation. So if I am stuck on a verse, I first pray, Lord, what does this mean? I don't really get it. Then I read the passage before, I read the passage after, I try to, I try to figure it out. I don't just go, oh, that's difficult and turn the page. I used to do that when I was a baby Christian. I don't do that anymore. Um, and sometimes I, don't, I can't always figure it out, but I come back to it at a later point and I, I try again. Okay. But if I do feel like I have an interpretation or sometimes if I'm super stuck and really, I can't think of anything and nothing is coming to me, then I'll go on the internet and, or I'll read a commentary or I'll read a different version of the Bible and I'll try to get some ideas of what this could mean. I won't just read one person's blog and be like, oh yeah, that's definitely it. Cause interpretations right but I try to get a broad picture of what most people think the verse means and I'm like okay that seems pretty good but I always keep in mind and I know because I've just done research that this is an interpretation of something I know that but when you read a, a bible translation that already is an interpretation you never know at what points you're reading word for word and at what points it, it borders on interpretation so that is my personal opinion of why I would, if you say, hey, Cassandra, what should I read? I would always point you to this category over here, not interlinear, that would be too much. Um, usually people, this is my favorite, New King James. I, I love it so much. I think it's beautiful in the way it's phrased. I think it sticks true to the text. It eliminates all the thee, thy, though, thou's from the King James, but I have had to come to terms with the fact that it is not the perfect translation handed down from God. And there might be points of it that aren't great. It's still hard for me to accept that because I love it so much, but I'm trying to be open and not close-minded. Um, so I will recommend that one, but for most people, I know they're going to be like, oh, I don't like the English. So then I usually recommend the ESV 
which is a more simple translation, but it still tries to stick to word for word. Right now, I'm doing more study in the NASB. Um, and it's actually crazy how similar these two are, even though they're actually translated from different texts, which we're going to go into in the next section. So, but if you want to fall into this category, I promised you I would not force anyone in this and try and say you have to read word for word. But here's my strong advice. Please never go past here into this section. So for those who are not watching a video, you can do word for word, you can do thought for thought, but please don't go into paraphrase. And some of the ones that fall into paraphrase would be NCV, NLT, NIRV, uh, GNT, CEV, TLV, and the message. Um, I will make a note here. This bothers me a lot. Amplified being considered a word for word. The reason they say that is because in the Amplified Bible, they will give you the uh, Greek word and all the synonyms, right? But then they will also in brackets add interpretation. But because they do the literal word for word, they put it in the word for word section, but because of the thought for thought that it adds, for me, I would place it somewhere here. So if you read Amplified, it's fine. Just keep in mind, what does brackets mean? Is that giving me synonyms or is that giving me interpretation? And so when you read it, try to remember if I'm seeing a bracket, that's an interpretation. That's not actually what the Bible said and I have to judge it, right? Uh, I do the same thing in the New King James. In the New King James, there are words that are italicized. And that means this was not in the original. We're putting this in here to make the sentence speak clearly when you're reading it. And so I'll read it with that. And sometimes I'll go back and I'll read it without the italics and hear what it sounds like. And sometimes to me, it makes sense without italics. So I don't know why they added it. Um, to be honest, I really don't feel like there's any translation that's too difficult to read. King James, mm, there's some points where it's like, okay, I don't even know what that word means. I've never heard that in my life. So maybe King James, but other than King James, none of these other translations that I've ever looked at, to me, seem really difficult. So I think also translators underestimate our intelligence sometimes. Um, Where's the other one? I don't know why it's not going out. Uh, oh, wow. Now it's all over my screen. <laughs> Clear all joints. Okay. Um, and I don't want to draw anymore. There was another picture I wanted to show, but it went funky now. Sorry, guys. Here we go. This is another one. I won't stay here too long. They have a bit more translations in here. So again, I wouldn't go past this imaginary yellow line off to NIV. Um, the only reason I'm showing this is because this adds some other information. So some Bibles have chosen to be gender neutral. So they will take out any words that are male and they'll replace it with something else which i think is unnecessary um god chose those words for a reason and i think we all know 
that when Paul says brethren, he means the female Christians too. Like, I, I really don't think there's one person that doesn't think he's including that. So for you to go and change the word brethren to something else just because you're scared someone's offended is unnecessary. Um, and then these red numbers on the ends is reading levels. So, and this is great. So like eighth grade in school, fourth grade in school. So all of these you'll see, except for King James is 12th grade and under. So if you passed school, you should be able to read everything except King James. And if maybe you passed 12th grade well, you should be able to read King James too. Um, I, uh, I have a, a parallel Bible, which I'll get to later, but um, it has the NLT in it. And I read the, the stuff at the beginning that where they explain everything, the part that everyone skips in their Bible and never reads, but I actually like reading it. Um, and the NLT says that um, it's written for a middle school level reader. Okay. And it's, you can see it here in the chart, sixth grade, six and a half grade, right? So I don't mind people reading it, but I also want to be like, you know, we're adults. You can read something a little more difficult. Like, I think we're all intelligent enough to branch out for something that's a little more difficult to read. It doesn't always have to be this easy thing, right? All right. That's all I'll say on that and then the third one is where i want to spend most of my time because he didn't address it at all and it is kind of dangerous to address because and this is why i didn't know if i wanted to um to kind of do this at all because the whole purpose of this whole course was to give you a lot of confidence in the bible and i don't want to strip that away from you um and so Sometimes when you talk about translations, it then creates this fear in people that, oh, I'm not getting the true word of God. I would say with an asterisk, in almost any translation that you will read, all the foundational beliefs of Christianity are the same. So if a skeptic ever brings that up, you can say to them, none of the foundations of our belief are different in any translation, right? Um, however, because because I care about you guys and I, I want what's best for you. I do want you to be aware that there are things that are different in different translations and some of them do matter. Um, and he did not address this. I don't know if that was to be safe or because he thinks it really doesn't matter. So in addition to philosophies of how you translate, there are obviously lots of documents to pick from. And we went through textual criticism and remember the little pieces and fragments, the exercise you had to do of how, how do we pick what it said, right? Um, so there are three schools of thought that uh, translation committees pick when they use, uh, when they choose what manuscripts to use for their translations. Um, and Although most manuscripts from both agree with each other, there are some differences. And I'm not going to tell you which one you should pick, but I want you to be aware of what those methods are and some of the differences between them because we can't go through everything. Um, so there's three schools of thought. 
there's majority text, which basically means um, we take all the manuscripts we have and they all get a vote. So if some say the word is cat, some say it's dog, some say it's parrot, and each one has one vote, the one who has the most wins, and in this case, it was dog. Therefore, when we write our English translation, we write dog, okay? There was a note here that says, um, most major translations are not, uh, they don't use majority text as their way of interpreting the Bible, translating it. Um, however, majority text almost unanimously agrees with the second version of, uh, of, of text that we collect. So the second one is called, um, sorry, I lost my place here. Did I not write it down? Oh, I did. <laughs> All right, the Byzantine text approach or the textus receptus, which means the received text. So um, back in the day, first few hundred years, the New Testament was essentially broken up in three different places, written in three different languages. So you had the Latin one, which most people today reject. No one, there are some instances where people use the Latin, <clears throat> but most people don't use that when they're uh, translating into English. Um, and then we have the Byzantine texts, which are the majority of the Greek manuscripts that we have. And then we have the Alexandrian texts, which are from like North Africa and Egypt. Okay, so almost every single Bible you read will either come from the Alexandrian texts or the Byzantine texts. Very few are going to ever do Latin. Maybe if you're Catholic, yours will have more of that. I'm not sure. I actually didn't look into it. Some Bibles, though, will say, oh, the Latin Vulgate or whatever says this in a footnote or something. Um, so uh, the Textus Receptus, brief history. You can look it up on your own if you want to. There was a guy named Erasmus in, like, I think the 15 or 1600s who needed to make a translation uh, of, like, a Greek New Testament. And so he collected what he had at the time, which was, like, not a Greek translation, sorry, an English translation. Now I'm confusing myself, I'm so sorry. Um, but he had like six or eight Greek manuscripts that he used to compile the New Testament. He put that together and that kind of was the foundation of what most uh, translations used up until modern times. So that's what the King James used, the New King James, uh, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, all that used the Texas Receptus. It was only in the 1800s where some guys discovered some manuscripts in Egypt where things changed and people started using um, those documents as well. So now we go to the third school of thought, which on the surface sounds like the best. And I'm not saying it's not, okay? It's called critical or eclectic approach, which we discussed a lot of the thoughts behind it, which are all valid. They look at who wrote it, when it was written, does it agree with the majority? Like all those things that we covered in previous sessions, they take that into consideration when looking at a manuscript and they decide which ones to use and which ones to throw away. Here's the problem. The two manuscripts that 
now I think they broadly referred to as the Alexandrian texts. They are the oldest ones that we have, like by a few centuries, okay? And they disagree with each other on some verses, but because they are the oldest, a lot of people believe that those ones should have greater value when there's a disagreement between them and the majority. And that's where people split, okay? So when you're reading a Bible, you're gonna have some that say, we should trust the oldest manuscripts. And there are gonna be some who say, no, we should trust the majority of manuscripts. I'm not gonna tell you which one you should choose because I think both have valid positions. Your brain might say oldest is best. And at first that sounds right. But remember in the past, we covered this and we said, the reason why something that's super old could have lost it is because it wasn't used as much because it wasn't legitimate. If something is not great and you put it aside in a vault somewhere and no one ever touches it, it's going to last longer than something that's passed around between a lot of people. Now, that doesn't mean that those two documents aren't accurate. We can't prove that because we don't have anything else to compare it to. They could be, although they disagree with each other. So then you have to ask which one of the two is more accurate. But I'm not downing them and I'm not saying that they're an, they're an abomination and they're from Satan and you shouldn't read any Bible translations that come from that. But I do want you to be aware that there are two schools of thought and how you will know what your Bible uses is it'll say it in the first few pages that no one ever reads. Um, it'll tell you what it uses. Um, by the way, I forgot to say this. The Old Testament uses the Masoretic text and basically almost everyone agrees on that. So every Bible essentially uses that. If you ever find a Bible that doesn't use the Masoretic text, then you could be like, mm, because that's a unanimous thing. Um, so for example, in my King James, right before the table of contents, um, it says the New Testament text. I won't even read it, but over there in the middle, it, it speaks about Textus Receptus. So I know that this one used the Textus Receptus, which is practically identical to the majority text. So their point of view was, we trust the majority and we trust something that was handed down, that was handed down, that was handed down, that was handed down. Because their school of thought is, well, it might not be old, but think about it. If we have all these texts and they kind of say the same thing, and even though Erasmus only collected eight of them, the fact that those still existed and were in use over so much time, they just feel like, oh, well, people passed it on and passed it on and passed it on. And why did they pass it on? Because it was the right one. So whether who's right, who's wrong, who knows, but you need to know that so you can make your own decision. And I, unlike translation philosophies, I don't have a super strong opinion on that. So I'll leave that up to you to decide. I've actually flipped and flopped between the two. Um, I was always majority text, Texas Receptus. And then, and I'm going to show you why now. And then I started to go more, mm, maybe critical text is better. And then actually in preparation for this session, I was like, mm, maybe majority text is better. So I don't have a strong opinion, but I want you to see why it matters. Cause it's not just, you know, a spelling error here and there. Um, so here are some of the differences 
So MT and TR is majority text and text is receptors. And there's a slash because in these instances, they say the same thing, okay? And CT is critical text. So we're gonna go through some of these. Um, some of them really don't matter. And I'm gonna read them so that you can hear and see who, maybe this isn't so bad that they're different, but some do, and you have to take that into consideration. So Matthew 544, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Critical text says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So they've left out, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. So they left out a lot of explanation. Now, does that really change the meaning exactly? You decide. Does one give you a little more nuance as to specifics? Yeah. Does that matter? A lot of these, I'm, I'm just going to leave it in the air and not give strong opinions on. Matthew 6, 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Critical text says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So kingdom, power, glory is left out. Matthew 8, 28. And when he arrived at the other side in the region of Gergenesis, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. The critical text says, and when he arrived at the other side in the region of Gadarenes, I'm not going to read the rest because it's the same. The only difference here is the place. Now, that matters if you are arguing probably with a critic because I know there's arguments over this. Oh, how can there be two places at once or whatever? You know, I have a city in South Africa that's called Joburg and Johannesburg and Josie. Who knows? Maybe they were slanging it. You know what I'm saying? Does it really change our theology? No. <clears throat> and you, Capernaum, which is lifted up to heaven, shall go down to Hades. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. It's Matthew 11, 23. Critical text says, and you, Capernaum, will not be lifted up to heaven, you will go to Hades. If the miracles that were performed in you had been in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. One is saying it in the negative, one is saying it in the positive, but actually they mean the same thing, right? Doesn't matter. But now we're just going to start to get to some things that maybe matter a little bit. Matthew <clears throat> 17, 21. Majority text says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. It has to do with delivering a demon, okay? The critical text doesn't have that verse at all. Um, some people say the reason, I think we discussed this, the reason this was put in was because in Mark, it has the same verse and both critical text and majority text have that in Mark. But the person who did the majority text wrote it as a footnote that later got inserted or whatever. They wrote it there because it said it in Mark. But the difference is this and fasting. That is not in both texts, including in Mark. So this doesn't change our theology, but it does change how we do deliverance, right? If you're delivering a demon, do you fast or not? So to a critic, that probably doesn't matter. But to us as Christians who have to deal with this stuff, it matters a bit. Matthew 18, 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Critical text does not have this verse. Now, could you derive that that's what Jesus 
came to do from other verses? Yes. So our theology has not changed. But some people die on this hill because they're like, that's a really important verse for you to leave out. Matthew 20, 16. So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Critical text says, so the last will be first and the first last. It doesn't say, for many are called, but few chosen. It's not a big deal, but it's a little bit of a big deal. Because if you believe in predestination and election, that's a, a verse you would use to support that. Okay. Um, Matthew 20, verse 22 and 23. Listen carefully, because this one is long and confusing. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared by my father. Critical text says, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, we are able. And he goes on. The missing part is the baptism part where he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? So most people um, agree that what Jesus meant by that is the suffering he was about to go through. So if you take that out, you're leaving out the fact that Jesus is warning those who will follow him that they will undergo suffering. But there are other verses that tell us that. So does it matter in the grand scheme of things? Maybe not, but it's an important thing to consider. I hope I'm sounding not too biased on either side. I'm trying. <laughs> um, I would, I'll skip that one. Uh, Matthew 24, 20, ugh, 36. But of the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Critical text says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Doesn't matter because by default, but my father only would exclude the son. Critical text includes saying, nor the son, but they mean the same thing. So it doesn't matter. Mark 6, 11. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from here, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Critical text says, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. That matters a little bit because Jesus pronounces a judgment against this city that is totally excluded. Does that matter or not? Mm -hmm. Did Jesus say it or not? Mm -hmm. We don't know. Depends on which text you're reading. Doesn't change our theology though. Um, Mark 9, 43 to 46. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I won't read the rest because it's the same, but critical text, um, I'm not going to read it, but it um, omits their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Doesn't change our theology, but it gives us a picture into what hell is like, which the critical text does not. 
I'll skip that one. Um, this one matters a little bit. Mark 10, 24. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? Critical text says, and the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. One says it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. The other one says it's hard for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. Which one is it? Can't be both. Well, I suppose if it's hard for everyone, it's hard for rich people too. But I think in that case, you would read the verses before and after, and you would come to your own conclusion. I won't tell you what they are. You should go look at the show. Um, this one's also kind of important. Mark eleven twenty six. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Critical text doesn't have the verse. Mark 15, 28. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Critical text doesn't have the verse. So if you are a Jew who's looking for proof that Jesus fulfilled prophecies, you're losing one right there by admitting that. Doesn't mean that there isn't enough evidence otherwise, but just putting it out there. This one is quite interesting. Luke 4, 4, Jesus answered him. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Critical text says, Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. That's for me pretty important because one is saying that we live by the word of God. It's emphasizing how the word of God is more important than physical sustenance. And the other one admits that idea completely. But at the end of the day, we can't 100% prove, 100% prove that Jesus did at the end say, you know, the word of God part. Most of the texts have that in, but the oldest ones don't. So what is your school of thought? Who do you trust? That's up to you. Um, so I'll leave that one because it's similar. The next one is the Lord's Prayer. It ends with, but deliver us from the evil one. Critical text doesn't have, but deliver us from the evil one. Does it matter? Probably not. Um, this is one that for some reason people take very seriously. It's in Luke 22, verse 43 to 44. It's about when Jesus uh, was praying and the drops of blood formed on his forehead. Critical text does not have any of that in it. Some people take this very seriously. Not really sure why. I think they want to make a point about him sweating blood because that's how serious what he was about to go through was. But if we don't have that detail, does it really change the fact that he died for us? Am I at least kind of sounding non-biased? Oh, I'm trying. <laughs> um, this is a pretty crazy one to think might not be in the Bible. Luke 23, 34. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cost lots. Critical text only says, and they divided his garments and cost lots. So Jesus forgiving the people who crucified him is gone, if you take critical text. Doesn't change our theology, but that's pretty insane to think if Jesus didn't say that, right? Because that's such a famous thing that Jesus said. Um 
I mentioned this one before, so I won't read it. The stirring of the water. We spoke about that being a, a comment on the side that got added in later. So I won't go into that. Uh, again, doesn't change our theology. Okay, this one is important. John 6, um, 69. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Critical text says also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. There's a big difference between the Son of God and just the Holy One of God. Was Jesus both? Yes. But we need to be careful when eliminating texts as to his divinity, right? <clears throat> Did I? Oh, I skipped this one. And this is super, super important. Uh, John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Critical text says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. This is actually one of the key verses that Mormons use to support that Jesus is not equal to God, but he is just a God and so are we. We are also little gods, essentially. So Jesus is not equal to God the Father. So this verse is important because people use it to disprove Jesus's divinity. There's a begotten means gotten from, out of, right? So if he's a begotten God, he didn't always exist. Now, begotten son is different. That's a function, right? So you can be a begotten son, but have always been God. Does that make sense? So there's a there's a big difference theologically there. Um, let's get that too. I'll put this up somewhere if anyone wants to like really go and read every single one of these. Um, this one is kind of important. Uh, X fifteen twenty four. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying. You must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such command. Critical text says, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls to whom we gave no such command. So the difference is <clears throat> you must be circumcised and keep the law, which might not sound like an important distinction, but there's a whole sect of people back then and today that believe you have to, in addition to believing in Jesus, obey the law or you're not saved. So Paul was addressing this in their time. And if we eliminate that, we're eliminating a verse that can help us to support that you don't need to obey the Old Testament law in order to have salvation. Does that prove that that verse has to be in there? No. But for me personally, when I see these verses that are different, they all seem to side very heavily with <clears throat> Jesus's divinity, important theological concepts that we try to preserve, and although we might be able to prove them from other verses, if we keep eliminating them, I start to get nervous that what if we've eliminated so many that we start to make our position a little shaky, um, at least in terms of trying to convince someone else that our faith is true, right? Or that their offspring of Christianity isn't correct. So that doesn't prove that the majority text or the textus receptus is correct. It doesn't, right? But for me personally, that's when I start to get a little shaky because 
you know, if it was just random things that didn't really matter, which some of these are, but a lot of these are actually important as a Christian. And so it's also hard for me to believe. Now, a lot of scholars disagree with me. I'll say that. But it's hard for me to believe that those things would have been added in later because the way they sound is so consistent with everything else that's being said. It doesn't sound like, oh, Cassandra came in and wrote this. You know what I'm saying? In, the, in some cases, like the guy stirring the water, I can see that. It's a very random, very mystical thing that nowhere else really in the Bible do we see something like that. But in most instances, it sounds like the same person who wrote the rest of the sentences before it, and it's consistent with the theology of the whole Bible. And so it's hard for me to believe why would someone feel the necessity to go write those words extra if that theology already exists in the Bible? That's my personal opinion. Um, I think for me personally, me personally, I, it's more easy for me to believe that the critical text, the older texts, they were not dodgy versions, but they were good versions, but they had some mistakes. And that's why they were pushed aside. And then the ones that had these verses in continue to be copied over time. There's a lot of scholars that disagree with that and that's okay. They're entitled to that opinion and you're entitled to yours. I'm not gonna argue with you over whether you pick old or whether you pick majority. I think they're both valid positions. I will argue if you read the message um, I won't read that one. That's about Lord's Supper. I'll skip that. I'm trying to see if there's any other super important ones because I don't want to read all of these because we're running out of time. Um, nope. Skip that. Okay. This is an important one. And this is one of the ones that makes me feel like, um, the Textus Receptus, for me, is the more accurate. 1 John 4, 3. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Critical text says, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. So the difference is one says every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And the other one is every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. Those are different things. One is saying Jesus Christ came, took on the form of man and came down to earth. The other one is saying Jesus is not of God. Okay. This is an important verse in general in terms of deliverance ministry. I know some of you don't care about deliverance ministry, but um, when, when a spirit is manifesting in a person, one of the ways that you can tell whether it's from God or not is to literally use this verse. This is the key verse that we use in deliverance ministry. We literally ask the demonic spirit if we're at that point not sure whether it's demonic or not because right? sometimes it sounds normal sometimes there's no crazy manifestations but a person starts to speak in their own voice in a way and you feel something mm, something feels wrong in the way this person is speaking and so since you don't know it's a demon you can use this verse to test and in that moment if you're sorry if you're bold enough to do so you can look at that person and say 
do you confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? And there's multiple instances recorded in that moment where the person will start, even if they claim to be a Christian, will start saying, no, curse him. Well, they'll go crazy. And that's how you know that the spirit that's in them is not of Christ, right? So you might say, well, maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe they just have to confess that Jesus is not of God. But then when I read this today, I was like, but then we have a problem. And then I remembered this verse in Matthew 8, 28. This is the Jesus of the Jesus's, the demon speaking to Jesus when um, he approached uh, demon possessed people, right? I can't remember if it was the individual man. So I don't want to say who it was. I'm sorry, guys. I should be more biblically sound. But the demon said to him, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So in that moment, the demons that we all know are demons, because the scripture tells us they are, they address him as son of God. Therefore, the critical text which says, and every spirit that does not confess uh, Jesus is not of God. <clears throat> That's the spirit of the Antichrist, right? So they would have failed that condition because they said he is of God. He is a son of God. But we know that they're demonic. So those two verses would clearly contradict. But if we use the first one, that for me makes sense because they're not confessing he came in the flesh. They're just referring to him as he is son of God. Okay. So does that change with uh, your theology determines if you're a Christian or not? No, but it does help in deliverance ministry. This one is interesting because I use this one a lot. But if I trust the critical text, I wouldn't have a verse to use. Uh, Jude, verse 22 to 23. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Critical text says, and on some have compassion who are doubting. But others save, pulling them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So the difference here is, but others save with fear. And the critical text eliminates with fear, right? So I use that as a proof text for um, different methods of approaching people with salvation. Some people need the love, grace uh, message. And some people literally, if you tell them about hell, they freak out. And they're like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, fine, you know? So you have to judge how you approach different people with the Holy Spirit's leading. Um, again, this doesn't change our theology, but it changes our method of evangelism, right? So for a critic who's trying to decide whether Christianity is true, texts like this should not matter to them. But for a Christian, it should matter because these things determine your theology and how you live out your faith. So that's why it's important for you to know this and why I couldn't just be like, Oh, whatever. I'm just going to let them pick randomly. Revelation 22, 14. This is very interesting. And people scream about this one. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So this is at the end when you die entering into heaven, right? Critical text says, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gate into the city. There's a very big difference between blessed are those who do his commandments and blessed are those who wash their robes. What does that even mean? 
maybe deep down wash their robes metaphorically means do his commandments who knows but again stuff like this makes me feel like that is a very strange verse for you to not agree on and so that's why i kind of swing a little more on textus receptus than i do critical taste i was going to go through all of these i won't um this was to show you that in this instance they're now changing it around and they're saying okay we've kind of showed you that textus receptus and majority texts agree almost always but there are times where they differ and times where <clears throat> For example, the critical text will agree with majority and then the textus receptus will be different or times where the critical text agrees with textus receptus and the majority text is different. Um, I'll read them really quick because they're so similar. Uh, Matthew 4.10, then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only so you serve. Uh, that was critical text and textus receptus. Majority text says, then Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan, and the rest is the same. The only difference is away with you, Satan, versus get behind me, Satan. Okay, that doesn't really matter. You can say both if you're worried, right? Um, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard it said by those of old, do not commit adultery. That was Textus Receptus. Majority texts and critical texts say, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. There's not really the difference there, right? Um uh, Matthew 5, 47, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Not even the tax collectors do so. Majority text says, and if you greet your friends only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Brethren versus friends. They kind of mean the same thing, right? So I won't read the rest. I think I'm going to read one more at the bottom. Um, but essentially, there are a few that are different. Most of the time, though, they agree with each other almost identical. It's more like synonym differences, which, again, for me personally, personally, makes me feel even stronger about Textus Receptus and majority text, because where they differ is synonyms, right? But if you compare them to critical text, there's theological differences. There are a few theological differences in this form as well, but they're they're um, much smaller. Uh, oh, this is one of the most famous ones as well. First John five verse seven to eight. Um, Textus Receptus is the only one that says this. For there are three that bear witness in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth: the Spirit the water and the blood and these three agree as one the majority text and the critical text say for there are three that bear witness the spirit the water and the blood and these three agree as one so it completely eliminates um three that bear witness in heaven the father the word and the holy spirit which is the only verse in the bible that contains the trinity in one sentence like the concept of the trinity is everywhere you can find it in multiple verses but nowhere is there one place where it, it kind of says the Trinity in that sentence. But I will say a lot of people don't believe this is in the Bible, especially because the majority text does not have this verse. So this is one of those times where I'll go, mm -hmm, maybe Texas Receptus is wrong, though it's really sad for me because it's the only Trinity verse. And I'm going to read one more and then we'll be done. Like I said, I'll put this up for you so you can look if you want. 
Revelation 22, 19, all of them say something different. Textus Receptus says, and it's interesting that this is the last one and that they differ on it. Um, and if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Majority text says, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, may God take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Critical text says, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So it's only missing um, may. It says God shall, and the majority text says may God take away. So one is saying it will happen. The other one is more like a God, make sure that you will do this, like a plea request, right? Um, and of course, Texas Receptus says book of life, majority text and critical text say tree of life which is a very interesting concept because we've all been taught our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but they might be written in a tree. So who knows on that one, right? <laughs> um, I found it interesting that the curse about not changing words has different words in each version. So I think, oh, I lost everyone. Wow. Yeah, I saw there were some chats. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Um, so for you guys, and it's sad that they missed this part because this is the only part that really matters. No matter what, this is what I hope you take away. Um, when it comes to that graph, nothing in the red section, please. Like I'm begging you. You can have your freedom and your choice, but nothing in the red section, please. <laughs> um, second thing, don't read single person translations. Read committees. It's safer that way. Um, do not... Do a Bible study on a paraphrase translation. So if you if you deny me and you're like, I will read something in the red section, fine. Please don't do a Bible study on it. Please read it for fun, but don't do a Bible study on it. Um, also take into consideration your maturity and the maturity of people that you are um, advising to get a translation. If it's a brand new Christian, you might not want to give them the King James, you know, but you might want to preface it. If you really feel like this person is really going to struggle, even with the ESV, give them a, I don't want to say NLT, I can't, NIV. Give them an NIV and say to them, this is quite a good version. There are ones that are a little more word for word and a little bit harder, but they give some, they, they encourage you to study more. And so read this for a while, maybe a year or two, but I advise you eventually to move on to something else. Same for you guys. If you feel very strongly about what you're reading now, you don't feel like you can move on, it's fine. But as you mature, I would advise you to broaden your horizons and spread out to some other translations. Um, if you refuse to change your translation, my next recommendation would be to do a parallel Bible. So get one that has your favorite translation in it. So you see, I deliberately went for one that has um, New King James in it. So I can still read my favorite. But I made sure it had some other ones I was interested in reading. It even has NLT in here, which I can't stand, but it's in here. It has NIV, which after comparing side by side with my favorites is strangely similar, which is very weird considering it's a more thought for thought translation, but I've gained some respect for it since comparing them. 
And even the new American standard, which is actually why I bought this, because I wanted to compare my favorite to the apparently more literal, literal translation. Um, and this one, new American standard is from the critical text and the new King James is from the Textus Receptus, but they're pretty identical. So this, a parallel Bible allows you to see things next to each other. So you are aware immediately of where there's differences. If you don't want to get a parallel Bible because it's overpowering and too much for you, at the very least, I beg you, no matter what translation you read, make sure you read something that has footnotes that will say, in this version, it says blah, blah, blah. And in this version, it leaves this verse out. Okay. Um, and my last two points, if you're lazy, if you're like, I refuse, I don't care, whatever, I'm not going to read multiple versions, then my strong advice for you is to get a word for word translation. If you are only going to read one thing ever, do the harder one. That way, you know, you're getting as close to God's word as possible. And if you want to read NLT, that's fine. But then you, you need to read a second one. If you only read literal and you want to read one, fine. And then the last thing is, and this is the thing I want you to take away the most. Whatever you pick, please have a reason why you picked it. Not because its cover was pink with flowers. Not because your grandmother gave it to you. Not because it's what everyone at church reads. Not because, oh, it has a great Bible study thing with it, you know? Those are not good reasons. Decide what side of things you stand on. Do you want majority text? Do you want critical text? Do you want Texas receptors? Decide, make your decision. Do you want word for word? Do you want paraphrase? Do you want thought for thought? Make a decision, an informed decision, so that at least if someone asks you, why did you pick that? You have a good reason. It wasn't just willy-nilly, oh, I walked into the store and that one looked pretty, right? Have a good reason. If you can give me a good reason why you read the version you read, even if we disagree, I can respect you. But if you have no reason, if you're just random, then I might sit you down and be like, yeah, we got to talk about this, right? So that was really long. But on the bright side, it was the last new topic. Uh, next week will be a summary. And uh, then we might take a break because so many people are not coming back um, for the holidays. So we might have the last session, which is the one with the prizes, gifts, whatever, when we come back and then we'll start a new thing. So this is the last new information session that you're having. Okay. Um, I'll take prayer requests separately. So hi, Eric, you wanna pray for us since you're never here? Sure. Close in prayer. God, I uh, just want to appreciate everyone that has come today. I want to appreciate, appreciate that uh, you're always here with us. Uh, you know, there's always something new to learn, even though it can be overwhelming at some times. <laughs> so God, I just, uh, you know, with everything that's going on, I just want to, you know, of protection over everyone that uh, this year finishes off well and uh, we all get everything we want for Hanukkah and <laughs> snakes <laughs> or Christmas if you celebrate it. Okay. <laughs>